came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Metting. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, you told me I had to be dancing this time when we came on live, you know? Absolutely has to be done. Wow, what an opening for a penultimate episode. It's also going to like sound absolutely ridiculous on an audio, right? True. It just opens up with a ridiculous laughter. And that was fantastic for those of you who've missed Jason's amazing shoulder dance, I would call yeah. it, which is surely a type of dance that we've never experienced before. This is remarkable. So, so thank you for that. And with that, well, welcome back to the final live stream of season seven. We still have one more episode to come and that will be a wrap up episode, but that will be just an audio. And that will also be an audience participation episode. So very exciting. But yeah, we're coming to the end of these discussions about the books and of reading together, which has been really exciting, really fascinating. And tomorrow is, of course, the International Day for Disaster Risk Reduction, 30th of October. And so it's great to be able to kind of to stretch the normal agenda, right, of the International Day for Disaster Risk Reduction and talk about things that we don't necessarily discuss in disaster space like books about Marxism and feminism and wage and patriarchy. For sure. It's been amazing talking about the books so far this season, especially getting into like where they cross over into disaster work, how we can apply them. Hopefully it's made people think like it has for me about ways that I can stretch my own understandings of different concepts by reading things that I'm, I might not otherwise have thought of, like linked to my field and as anyone who listens knows that's kind of something that we love to do so far in this season we discussed a couple of books that were chosen by the audience in polls on twitter that many of you probably participated in we discussed in the last few weeks or months malcolm ferdinand's decolonial ecology max laboron's pollution is colonialism and paulo Freire's pedagogy of indignation and thank you all for joining us in those sessions. If you missed them, the recordings are on YouTube and will be released as audio episodes as well. And so today we are discussing the final choice that our Twitter audience made for us, and that is Silvia Federici's Patriarchy of the Wage. Yeah, absolutely. I think the original idea was to read on the witch and that's where kind of our obsession, right? Just the reach started from. But then I went to a bookstore and saw this other book and <laughs> kind of persuaded everybody to put that on the poll. And there we are. And you know, thank you everyone for voting for it. Today we're actually we'll talk about the book, of course, but we actually want to stretch this conversation a little bit broader than we would normally do because we really want to kind of explore how patriarchy connects to wage and economic struggle and we will do it with our guest who will join us in just a few minutes and today we will be joined by dr maha and maha is a british academy bilateral chair 
in Conflict and the Director of Center for Lebanese Studies at the University of Cambridge. Maha is a sociologist and in, of education, in particular investigating education inequalities and the politics of education reform. And so this will be absolutely fascinating to bring Maha's insights into conflict and kind of struggle into, again, the conversation that we should really be having, but we are not. Yeah, I really enjoyed Caliban and the Witch. As you know, we've talked about it on the podcast before. And so there was a lot of things in Patriarchy of the Wage that reinforced some of the things that I you know understood as I read Caliban and the Witch that were really kind of new for me. This book I felt was went much more into a critique of Marxism and how and started to unpack like, well, how would Marx have grappled with some of these if he were alive today? And I like how it kind of posed that question and speculated that maybe Marx would appreciate the ways his ideas have been shaped by critiques of, you know, the, of like from a colonial or post-colonial perspective, from a indigenous perspective, um, from a feminist perspective. And like the book kind of speculated that, that he would be done with that, you know, were he mm. around today. And, uh, but in particular, the book went into the change in the 19th century and the change in the role of women and maybe spoke to why Marx, Marxism is, was a bit blind to that, um, blind to feminist ideas. And uh, in particular, the role of the working class, working class women, you know, like coming out of factories as something kind of intentional by capital to to for their own interests for reproduction of bodies and also to service men in different ways rather than having you know power, labor power and i thought that was that just made me think a lot as to to how that has shaped like our current family structure and the current way that we like the current inequalities that women experience um in in terms of their labor power now because it's been fundamentally shaped by those those historical processes and of course we still live in a absolute patriarchy which mm. is informed by those processes so yeah for me the under underlying thing was just the critique of labor in some ways the crit critique of labor struggles as often being white and work white like a struggle for the white working class mm. man Sure. and not inclusive and so i i struggle a little bit to like both in caliban and the witch although it's super super intriguing and um open my eyes to lots of things i sometimes find like how to connect this kind of dense theory with my work so yeah that's what i kind of took away and what i'm grappling with in reading this book yeah, for sure. I mean, I kind of I found the book really intense, right? Not in the way that it's written, but it, it, it in its content and really quite provocative. And I guess Caliban and the Witch were was very similar in that sense. But I was really curious about this book because I absolutely love the quarrelsome quarrelsome tone that Federici in Caliban and the Witch, right? And kind of in the way that she writes, and because I find it really exciting how. Federici brings Marxism and feminism together, right? Not mixing them, but really sort of juxtaposes them and asks a really pertinent question that you alluded to, right? Why was Marx unable to anticipate these profound transformations in the proletariat family that took place in the 19th century, right? Instead, creating pretty much a new patriarchal regime. 
at, at you know her demonstration of that in Soviet Union, for instance, and in China, really quite quite profound. What I found, however, surprising is that instead of kind of completely dismissing Marxism altogether, right, her feminist critique modifies Marxist theory, and you know, to make it kind of more exclusive for all revolutionary subjects, right. And as you said, it's not just about the white male industrial workers. And I, I kind of feel that these essays, the patriarchy of the wage books, because they're not really connected, right? They're just separate essays that span for what, 30 years of her work, perhaps more. They highlight the very unimaginative nature of revolution, be that the industrial revolution or the sexual revolution, because we still end up with capitalist patriarchalism, as she calls it, right? And she writes, we have always belonged to capital every moment of our lives. And it is time that we make capital pay for every moment of it. And it's wonderful kind of how masterfully, right? She shows how the capitalist strategy to divide and reorganize the working class, it really works. And she eloquently calls it patriarchy of the wage. And found, I found one of her flyers when I was kind of, you know, I wanted to learn a little bit more about her. When she was in New York in the 1970s and she was kind of leading this campaign called No More Work for Free. And then one of her flyers, she wrote, we are seen as nagging bitches, not workers in struggle. And I thought that just captures the division, right, of, of workers so, so well, and the division that wage provides the foundation for. And so these essays also really made me think about the way that we talk about vulnerabilities and capacities and disasters, right? And kind of when we talk, for example, about mutual support, because mutual support is sort of seen as this natural act of love and care, right? I'm just going to go and support you, and that, that's just fine, right? And Friedrich so argues that this narrative actually serves the owning class, the powerful class, by separating, separating you know, reproductive labor, or labor of love, or labor of care from the waged labor, when in fact both are necessary, right, to profit generation. And the central argument that true solidarity requires value in all labor, including love and care and, you know, reproduction. It's with what I think we see in marginalized. But, you know, Marxism aside, kind of feminism aside, well, not really. I actually really enjoyed the final essay of this book on the origins and development of sexual work and the sexual liberation. I just want to read very quickly this last paragraph. It's the last paragraph of the last essay. And she writes, but the main difference is that our mothers and grandmothers looked at sexual services within a logic of exchange. You went to bed with the man you married. That is the man who promised you a certain financial security. Today, instead, we work for free in bed and in the kitchen, not only because sexual work is unpaid, but because increasingly we provide sexual services without expecting anything in return. Indeed, the symbol of the liberated woman is the woman who is always available, but in return, no longer asks for anything. And as I, I was reading this essay, I kept thinking about Marilyn French's work a lot, you know, and it's kind of, of the same, yes, it's that second wave of feminism and her novel, The Women's Room, as well as, you know, her nonfiction piece, Beyond, Beyond Power, which I, you know, we spoke so much about. And I could see such strong parallels with liberation in disaster, if you wish, right? In a sense that resilience has kind of become this really mainstream and apolitical tool for liberation, right? And as the number of women killed by their partners is growing, right? So is the number of people affected by disasters. But it feels that if we acknowledge this, if we really start talking about this, if we say that we do not believe in resilience, like we say we don't believe in sexual liberation, right? We will be seen as kind of backward, right? As, as really in the argument. And so I think to me, what this essay is called for is kind of that practice, pra praxis of love that would really help us rediscover what love is 
and we're, perhaps we're going back to Freyre here, and who kind of argued the same thing, right? And if we start considering disasters from this angle of love, where would we end up in our action? Very interesting for me. And I do think that disaster scholars should read this book because it's such fantastic insight into the history of feminist movement. And I think it's critical for the politics of today because it really reflects, it should be reflected in our discussions around vulnerability and it provides a basis for kind of articulation of a politics which would be aware of multiple facets of capitalist exploitation and struggle, right? Something that, that we're really trying to push forward. Camilo, you're back. I think you're absolutely right. It's one of those books that you would never, you know, choose to pick it up unless you are very interesting, but everybody should read. And the reason for is specifically about the fact that offer a very fundamental original critique on production, which I think is super important, but also offer a sort of poetic intersectionality of the way in which the work of love and the what you call it, and I found it interesting, the counter planning that happens in the kitchen, which is both something about the poetics of the everyday life, but also the way in which the struggle of reproduction. And we often think about production, but not reproduction, which is an often mm. important element of overlook. So I think the book is on one side calling for an original critique, but on the other offering a unique version of a reflection on the productivity, specifically on the wage into that. So I think it's very interesting to, to as an overlap. It's also very easy to read which I found it interesting mm. in compared to other forms of you know, critical Marxist theory or other, is also very engaging. And the essay, which is the last that you already mentioned, is also very historically grounded, which I do believe is still in the spirit and in the style of Silvia Federici. So she goes very much into historical moments, historical moment of struggles of wage and work and the construction of subjectivity, but also she is able to, is capable and able to convey very, very visible, very tangible, very poetic forms of, of, of reflection. That is very historically constructed, but is very much in relation to the working dimension. And today, I think this idea of production and working is very topical is working towards the everyday, is working towards the emotion, is working towards the ambient, is working towards the planning. And I do believe that is a reconnection. There are aspects of the book that might be sort of interested to provoke. For example, that is the chapters on when he speaks about the feminism and the construction of the common, which I think is a especially in Europe, the notion of common and commonality and communism to a certain extent is quite it's quite a fundamental component. And maybe there there is a you know there is a more specific reflection on the different traditions of that. She questioned the original Antonio Negri and Michael Arendt, uh, ref, uh, you know, reflection on the common, which comes from a very specific Euro Eurocentric visions of what we saw in other books the necessity to move to other forms of epistemology that question that, you know, being together into, which I do believe is problematic on one side, but it's still very, very interesting. So <clears throat> I believe the issue on productivity to me is super central. And also in the one on reproduction opens to a very interesting reflection across the different elements. There is probably a terminology we might need to question which is the one of the proletariat, which is historically constructed in the, you know, in the way she works. But the question on who constitute the proletariat today, and, and you, you use the word marginalization and marginal, which I think is very interesting. 
And I think is also she does something around the notion of opacity and the transparency. Where we situate our research in terms of what we look, what are the objects of research in specifically in relation to disasters and crises in general, more speaking, which I think is interesting on the, you know, the language of crisis, which is typical Marxist, but also the way in which to, to look at different specificities of bodies and labor, which I think are super important category today to construct the narrative of how the everyday is, you know, is really made in terms of productivity. So I found it very topical and also quite interesting. Silvia Federici is an interesting reader to a certain extent beyond that, that being one of the last, probably as David Harvey, Marxist, uh, original Marxist mm. to a certain extent, which has to belong to a very important connection of the overlapping within the feminism and the feminist core has to be you know connected with other forms of struggles globally which i think is very interesting remember that silver which is based in the us is part of a sort of uh, northern if you want a reflection which i do believe the expansion towards other forms of epistemologies grounded into the marxist theory are still very important into the this and we saw in other books the necessity to or the strategies to go ahead again i think the jump to disaster studies has to be done by work and as you said the work of love or the work of you know engaging with constant tradition but still the logic the first chapter is very interesting you know the, this counter planning remember counter planning from the from the kitchen remembers very much bell hooks but remember also fred moulton and a sort of very important you know black literature that or black critique so what we have here is a sort of very interesting theory around which different forms of critique could find mm -hmm. a fertile you know, territory of engagement on the, still the question remain on what constitutes today a class struggle. And for us, you know, today a class struggle is a question that probably has to be readdressed differently. And the question I have is how we reframe a class struggle today originally into, and if the disaster studies somehow could connect with uh, a class struggle. That's for me remain a very mm. open question. I think that this is super interesting, you know, in class that is something that certainly doesn't get picked up at all in disaster scholarship. But I want to bring Maha in, into the discussion because I, you know, what you said, hi Maha, thank you so much for joining us. Hi. You know, you've heard us kind of behind the scenes, right? Talking about this, this the class struggle and kind of the crisis and the necessity to really move away from the Western epistemologies in a way that, you know, much of really Marxism is interpreted. And I, I, as I was engaging with your work, you know, in preparation to this live stream, and also Camilo was kind of telling me about the stuff that you do. It was all very exciting. I want, I wonder what, you know, how do we actually talk about struggle? How do we talk about economic struggle, the kind of struggle for wage? How do we talk about exploitation and resistance in a context of crisis? And particularly in, in a context of Middle East and crisis, right? That we really somehow don't, affiliate whatsoever or don't refer to whatsoever when we talk about Marxism in general. I, thank you. I want to reflect first on a few points that you were discussing and I want to share a story. My first experience as a, a young academic was 
So I have a hobby of doing history on the side. And one of the things that we unpacked was we were looking at the, in Lebanon, on the first martyr and the labor movement in Lebanon, because one of the first, since the declaration of the state of Lebanon in 1943, we had lots of labor movements. This was one of the earliest things that we had. You know, Marxism was very popular at that time. And then we started digging the archive of the Marxists at that time. And what I thought was fascinating is how much they intentionally tried to silence all the women movement, which actually was the most prominent labor movement at that time. And one of the first people killed was a woman. So we, and it was so interesting that these Marxists themselves, you know, and this is where I think the, you know, patriarchy and Marxism and capitalism and, and all of these isms come together. And sometimes, you know, you would think they should be on the same side, but often they don't. That's where patriarchy is. I think it's, it's interesting also to rethink of Marxism in, at least in Lebanon and the Middle East, and how much patriarchy dominated and shaped what can be done, who can be considered as a as resistance or not, or a, against the regime or not, etc. But also in the book, you know, when you're discussing it, and unfortunately I didn't have the chance to read it, but there was another thing that was coming into my mind is where does race sit into all of this? Because in Lebanon, the feminist movement, including a lot of the Marxists at that time, were not talking about race. They were not talking about domestic, female domestic workers in the feminist movement in Lebanon. And you would have lots of these middle-class, upper-class women demonstrating about the rights, but, you know, they were forgetting completely the rights of the domestic worker females in their houses. And this was not part of their, their issue. So mm. I think it's all of these layers that come together is interesting. And I think, add to that, when you have capitalism and when you have patriarchy, but also you have a re religious system at the same time, the struggle to talk about women labor becomes even more difficult because not only you have to fight patriarchy, you also have to fight these religious systems that are aligned with the capital as well, because they are all in the end part of the same regime. They make up this regime that you're trying to, to penetrate and to break. And that's, that I think is, you know, that adds another layer of what challenges. I mean, at least in Europe or in the global north, you don't have this. I mean, we, you do have it. Like in Poland, we still have, you know, like in the US as well, we have issues around, you know, women abortion, etc. Um, but I think in the context of the Middle East, there's another layer. Religion becomes even a more prominent layer. But at this, you know, also I thought like how relevant this book is amid COVID. I think for all of us women, single moms or not single moms, we realized how much the world is still... You know, you know, unfair to women within a pandemic crisis. You know, women who are dying. You know, the the nurses or primarily females, ethnic minorities, etc., who were losing their lives, being underpaid, but also who had to do all the domestic work back at home. So I think this discussion is still very relevant now in the context of disaster and crisis. And I'm going. So I was working on a presentation, and one of the things that I think is very interesting, interesting in the context of crisis and disasters is. The, um, the tendency of now humanitarian regimes to, to stick to nation states as one of their strong frameworks to bring about anything that they want to do. It's easier for them to negotiate with a nation state, even if it's patriarchy, capitalist, you know, unfair, etc. And they're okay to buy into all of this, you know, exploitive system. And making refugees and displaced communities even more vulnerable. And I think this is 
yeah, I wish we would have a debate like this with some humanitarian agencies around, you know, around these topics and what systems they create to unfortunately strengthen these patriarchal systems that, that we have. I, you know, I really love the links that you're making between kind of borders and patriarchal systems. I haven't really thought about that in, in this way. We, of course, see strengthening capitalist systems, but as you said, right, everything kind of goes hand in hand. And I wonder how then the struggle that we're talking about, be that kind of struggle from the left, right, the struggle from feminists, how that reflect real struggle that the borders present to us, right? Because that, as you said, the struggles as they're portrayed now are very middle class and of kind of very educated people, right? And not of the people who are marginalized and who are most affected by borders because they're invisible. Yes, absolutely. And, and this is, I think, one of the issues that we continue to have. I mean, I think feminism has gone a long way to, to address class and it's a struggle, but still we have still a very long way because I think it's very striking that we don't talk about we don't talk about race we don't talk about you know th that layer we don't talk about legal status and how that this even adds another layer of exploitation whether women or or not there are many things that one would this you know could bring up here I don't want to dominate the discussion but go for it I, I think it's also one one an interesting I think class you know station of how we talk about you know women's bodies etc is sex work. So in Lebanon, it was so interesting in the past 15 years, there had been a big push by international NGOs to stop using the word prostitute and talk about sex workers. While the studies in Lebanon were saying most of the women who are involved in prostitution or sex work, whatever you want to call it, are forced. So it's not a choice. So from a very Eurocentric point of view, they were free to use their bodies. But the women in their context, they were saying, we're not free to use our bodies and it's not for us work, it's an exploitation. And there was a lot of tensions between the feminist groups at that time. It's like, no, we cannot talk about sex work. And it is exploitation and it is, you know, well, and this is a class issue. And this is also, there's a cultural dimension to, to, you know, what is considered to be okay or not okay, or what would women internalize or not internalize. And I think this is an interesting a class issue as well, but also very Western centric understanding of bodies and sexuality. This is very interesting. Maybe I can come with one question. There is a at one. I love that 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 reflection. One of the limits I think that the book is offering is somehow a, of course, a deliberate Western critique, as you said. So set into the limit but there is one sentence that i think is interesting into the logic is which is both marxist and also the interpretation of sylvia federici which is that the revolution starts at home and is a sentence that is quite you know quite provocative on one side but also very and homes means different things especially in a context where the neoliberal drive of a certain urban planning dimensions was, uh, you know, privatizing home, the absence of a social state or a social or a complex state to, but on the other, the struggle to make home, the struggle to, you know, construct the domesticity, the possibility of living and an interrelated, you know, financial crisis that now is in Lebanon, very intense into that. And I wonder whether, what would be your reaction, your reading of this question of the revolution starts at home? You know, it's, 
which in Federici is a sort of very positive call, which is like the repossess the locality, the home, the intimacy, the domestic labor and the reproduction, which is canonical feminism. But what would be that possibility in a context like Lebanon where making home is a continuous struggle? Okay, I think this again comes to individualistic versus a more structural challenge. And I think there is a tendency for us to put a lot on the individual. And I think in my part of the world, uh, community matters more. And I think, and it's also, it's interesting how the West then looks at what happens, what women's movement, like let's say Iran, what's happening now. I mean, this is a revolution at home, if you take it as an example. But at the same time, and it's saluted, but at the same time, the sanctions that have been imposed on Iran, the impact on all their lives has never been questioned. And I think this is why both, and this is why also we see notions such as resilience, again, putting the responsibility on the individual. While we're kind of like ruining the lives of, you know, creating a system that can ruin their life. And I think this is where we need to be very cautious about how much we give responsibility. It's a very heavy burden to give this. I agree in some sense, yes, to some extent, but, and maybe I think it's a generational change that would probably it's a long-term change rather than rather than a short term. But I think um, structure is super important. I think leaving it all to the individual and the home is a huge. Uh, it's a huge endeavor. I think it still happens. I'm not saying it doesn't. It does, but I don't think that we should leave it all to the home. Thank you. Jason, do you want to come in? Yeah, I was just gonna gonna say, you know, it's we've talked about this before in the podcast and written about the way that neoliberalism kind of suggests that you solve systemic issues or systemic oppression and violence with individual protective measures and that's a big critique of the resilience paradigm yeah one thing that came to mind when you were talking maha about like liberation sexual liberation was in one thing that stuck out to me from this book was the way that she argued for liberation from sex you know as a role that was like expected so that she was arguing for liberation from sex rather than further exploitation by intensification of the expectation of sex. And I think that was a, an important direction that she was taking in this book and certainly something to think about because a lot of feminism is driving towards intensification of sexuality. And it just made me think for sure. Uh, absolutely. I think it's it's interesting coming myself from a, a, a traditional background, I would say, where I remember as a as a young person, you know, it's like it's a religious duty, you know, particularly in a in marriage, sex is a religious duty, and if you're not doing it, then the angels are cursing you all day and night. And it's interesting that now, you know, twenty years later, we're talking about family rape, even in in Lebanon, and for the you know, sorry, rape within marriage. That was something that you would not talk about. So I think we have gone a long way, but at the same time, we have gone in, in some areas, we have also gone into other ways. And, and I think this is what women are also complaining about is the over-sexualization and the, uh, uh, the, the over-expectations of what you need to be uh, doing. You know, in the, of the, I don't know if you've, during some, I think um, in a couple of years ago, there was a woman's day and uh, one of the videos that was shared widely was, 
about how women are expected to be pretty, reproductive, sexy, working, clever, smart, and cook and do all of this. And in some ways you've acquired, me and my friends from the Middle East often talk about how we feel cheated because now we're expected to work outside and to work inside. So you have double the workload. And, you know, when it comes to laws and legislation, you're expected you know, you don't have any rights that are protected, you know, particularly in Lebanon, we still have religious family law, you know, so inheritance, divorce laws are all very patriarchal and very much still religious and very much pro-men. So this is where, you know, you feel like we, we have caught on with the women's movement, you know, like work, freedom, independence, but at the same time, we haven't gained our rights, the legal rights on the other side, if we ever want to challenge this. And this is what I think fighting from home and liberation from home becomes even harder. And Lebanon, despite all the, the I mean, at the moment, there are very strong campaigns by women concerning children custody. Mm-hmm. And still, you know, uh, some of the courts have improved the child custody age, but still you can lose your child when they turn two and you would hardly see them. So again, and this is where we feel like we've made achievement in certain ways, but I think the toughest battle is the religious battle. One thing, one thing that I think about is, as you're speaking there, Emma, is that it seems like a lot of the social change that is like required or um, like where progress is made, women are being expected to do more. And like the expectation is like, how are women going to change their role or behavior or whatnot, rather than thinking about who else needs to change in this situation? You know, not only is it systemic, but it's also very much on men who benefit from the way that the system is and the fact that they are not expected to do domestic work. Um, Like we don't talk enough about how that behavior and how that role needs to change, right? Absolutely. I just want to touch on one theme that I would love to share with you, because especially that we talk about disasters and in a context of conflict, because one of the themes that is very much close to or what a humanitarian organization would think they said more of a feminist way or more like sympathizers and trying to put women is the concept of vulnerability. So women are always considered more vulnerable and as a result, a higher, you know, they have to be protected more. And I think this this post for me is like, mm, can we really say that women are more vulnerable in context of, let's say, displacement or not? Because men can be extremely vulnerable in the sense of they could be killed, shot or kidnapped or etc. So, and it was interesting to see how this concept of vulnerability has gained a lot of legal structure, particularly in the global north. And it's a criteria for asylum seeking, which is somehow, this is, I'm just thinking like, should we talk, should women be seen as more vulnerable than men or not? Or, you know, like, does that mean that their lives more valued than others? And that, that is interesting because when we're doing a study on that, men were telling, you know, in some ways they were extremely vulnerable. So, yes, I'm just curious to, what are your thoughts on this? Huh. Go, Jason. No, I, you're picking up on something that's quite dear to us. And we're, we've been writing, we have a paper almost ready to submit that's really people. kind of reframing vulnerability. We draw on a lot of feminist critique of vulnerability, how it's been used. Disaster anthropology, I think, has done a better job than a lot of disaster studies in looking at vulnerability in a critical way. But you're right, it, it's almost like we need to refocus what we're trying to say about women's identity and characteristics and towards oppression and violence rather than 
like vulnerability as something that should be pitied or is a weakness or something. Mm -hmm. I think if we talk about it more in terms of oppression and violence, then it becomes a much more critical conversation that cannot be solved through like some sort of standard approach to like of pity or of humanitarian aid. It becomes a much more useful discussion when we talk of it in those terms. I guess this is something, this has kind of been a thread through the whole of the season, right? In the live streams and in our readings. And it's fascinating to see how no matter which, almost which side we approach kind of disasters from, right? We always come back to this kind of, to this discussion and challenging of the notions of vulnerability, of the notions of kind of understanding struggle and resistance. So, so, so it's been great to see and I guess it, it has reinforced our point of reading outside of the disciplines, right? And not just kind of getting stuck with disaster focused literature. And I'm mindful of time, and I really don't want Camilo to miss the flight. That, that'll be quite funny, right? On set, but uh, let's. Right. let's it, <laughs> I'm just waiting to see, see him. For a good conversation, I'm happy to miss you, You're miss, willing to miss the flight. Okay, that's the commitment. I'm, I'm devoted like to, to the code. Let me say was, something about this, this about the vulnerability, on. which I think is interesting. I think the whole apparatusis of critique that we have sort of alluding and reflecting through is actually really pointing to the capacity to unpack a complex concepts that are not any more useful to, you know, to, to depict the situation. And one of the things that I think is important, especially in rereading Silvio Federici's, is the fact that the concept of vulnerability has to be rethought relationally as a forms of production, not as, you know, something given, right? And I think that is super important and, you know, can be reconnected back to what Maha was saying. And, you know, just not, and if we were to students that, you know, immediately, you know, approach to disaster studies or so, is actually to question the relationality of the factor of vulnerability. And actually, feminist theory and feminist critical theory was absolutely immediately spot on into that and immediately saying, oh, well, why we should, why we have, why we are. And I think that is, is super, super important. And this doesn't mean to, you know, to, to question the, the complete history, but to a certain extent, I think there is another problem that the, which I think is critical enough, is a critique on the fact that in the original reading of Marx, which is outdated, you know, originally outdated in terms of, but outdated in the sense that belongs to a very moment of history, is that emancipation starts from work which I think is a super important element for humanitarian agencies too, is the centrality of work to, I mean, if you have to rephrase Marx's reflection, which is, you know, the emancipation start from industrialization. Of course, industrialization was basic that moment of uh, logic of work in, in Europe when Marx was writing, right? But in reality, it's the work. So it's the capacity to, be, to produce meaningful life and, you know, to sustain life of that. And I think that is super important because that's opened the question to the informal capacity of generating wage, the informal network of doing and the capacity of the state actually to, you know, to employ, you know, somehow. And I think that is a very important element to, you know, to go back to, you know, an humanitarian regimes that is certainly, which is not, you know, you know, you know good for work or other forms of solidarity or, that but is the fact of thinking that people in order to achieve dignity and liberation 
as actually to be productive, to, you know, to find the to find the pathway to liberation through schools or through emancipation to being able to share capacity skills and components and i think that logic both pedagogically speaking but also economically speaking is super important to be rethought into the humanitarian regime which i believe is part of the conversation we are having so camillo you would replace the revolution happens at home it happens at work then in your opinion <laughs> Oh, well, someone has already said that, but yes, I think it's interesting to... to yeah, yeah. I think it connects but, but, to... I was just going to say, I think it connects to Freire, what we were talking about, and to, like, changing the world, changing changing your reality. Um, may, and, I, and maybe it goes in a certain direction if we talk about, like, labor struggle in, and workplaces, but when we think of it more broadly as, like, changing our material conditions, through acting on the world and acting on the problems that we see. It, I think it connects to that kind of theory as well. Yeah, but also in, a, in acting in a way that em emphasizes dignity mm. rather than productivity, right? And rather than wage. And I think that's, that's really important. Thank you so much. Thank you, Camilo, for being with us through the season. It's just been wonderful to have, a to have you as our co-curator. We absolutely love chatting with you and it's been great and maha thank you so much for joining us today for sharing your insights again it's great and i hope we can continue this conversation i have 100 more million questions for you and before we finish i also want to thank all of our audience right for reading together with us in this season i really loved exploring what kind of critical theory means through all these various readings and I hope they have convinced you of the importance of practice and reflection, right? And reading outside of our discipline. And we hope that you enjoyed this live stream format. And also, as Jason said, the audio versions of all the live streams will be released soon. And in fact, you can already catch up with the first two episodes and the wrap up episodes will be coming out in audio format only in a couple of weeks time. We will be back with season eight in early January, 2023. And we will be back to our normal audio format. But of course, we won't, We don't want you to miss us too much, right? So please join us for a special live stream on the 28th of November, where we will be joined by our friend Jay Kada to discuss the virtual special issue of Decolonizing Disaster in Disaster Journal that Jake guest edited last year. And then we will, of course, do a Christmas special. I know everybody loves Christmas special, <laughs> but it's early to talk about that. It's not even November yet. So thank you for joining us. Follow us on Twitter and on any podcast app. And of course, enjoy the rest of season seven. Bye. Bye. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time.